So welcome, everybody. Um, let us uh, start our lesson this morning with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as children unaware of the perilous situation we find ourselves in, asking that you would open our eyes to the sinfulness of our hearts, to the fallenness of this world, and to the deceitfulness of the devil. Use this time to give us right knowledge of the magnitude of our transgressions and give us more and more reason to ground our hope in the finished work of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Knowing Sin by Mark Jones has 18 chapters. This morning, we will be studying chapters 16 and 17, entitled Sin's Temptations and Sin's Degrees. Last week, Ryan led us through Sin's Manipulation and Sin's Thoughts. And next week, Ryan will be leading us through chapter 18, which is on Sin's Omission. Dennis, okay, there you go. Last minute change. And that'll be our last lesson, right? Okay. As a reminder, our author, Mark Jones, is a senior minister at Faith Vancouver Presbyterian Church, which is a PCA church. He's the author and editor of many books and speaks all over the world on topics related to the Christian life. I'm going to start off today with a definition of temptation for your consideration. Many definitions of temptation have been offered, but Mark Jones says one can hardly do much better than John Owen who in his classic work of temptation in 1658 provided this one. Temptation then in general is anything, state, way, or condition that upon any account, whatever has a force or efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and heart of a man from its obedience, which God requires of him, into any sin, in any degree of it, whatever. To understand the place of the force or efficacy or power, we're going to begin by reading from chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession. We're looking for the force of this power, or the, the place of this force, right? So reading from Westminster Confession, chapter 5 of Providence, paragraph 1. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, 
goodness, and mercy. So from this text, can anyone define the word providence? Maybe by synonyms. I'm sure this word providence is something you've heard before. Okay. So here's the word we see providence up here. And certainly it is connected to his will, right? Okay. So up here we have direct, some other words, uphold, dispose, govern. Um, some other words people might say would be like control, right? Um, and art pointed to what was, I was going to go after next, which is what is the source of God's providence? And that's going to be one of the things is his own will, right? What's another source that you can see up here for God's providence? So these are things that we should praise his characteristics, right, for his providence. Um, and then we also see here his infallible foreknowledge, right? So all of these things are related together. For scripture references, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 states, referring to Christ, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay? Here we're bringing in ideas of providence. In Hebrews chapter 1, 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So if God is preserving and governing and ordering all things to his own glory, then how can we say that anything else, like in our lesson today, temptation, can be said to have power? Right? To answer this question, we're going to continue reading from the next paragraph of the Confession. Reading from the Westminster Confession, chapter 5 of Providence, paragraph 2. Although, in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Okay, so our first question here is, what is the term first cause right here mean? What is it speaking of and what is it, what is it trying to communicate? So yeah, God and his decree, right, are the first cause here. And what is it, what is the term first cause intended to communicate about God? Origin? Okay. Like, so you'd be like the source of all things? Okay. So if you're, if you're tracing causality, it all goes back to God. Um, some people have caused him, or called him like an uncaused cause, right? Um, another way of saying it is God is underived. He's not acted upon by his creation, right? And or um, uh, 
Uh, another word would be like he's God is Ase. What's that? He's not in effect. Right. So, and then that's put up against, here we have the first cause put in up, up against this second cause concept. So from this text, our second causes within the decretive will of God. So, yeah, so order is one of the things we, one of the words we used to describe what decree is, right? So is, he's in control of second causes, right? So if second causes then are within the decretive will of God, let's think about evil then. Is evil within the decretive will of God? Okay. Yeah, so we're not saying, we're not asking if he causes evil, right? But we're asking, with, is it within his control? Right, so there's, there's nothing that's outside of his plan, right? And what Tom's referring to here is foreknowledge, right? There's nothing that is outside of his foreknowledge. Right, so that's not the same as ordination, right? So here, sometimes we ask about priority, which one comes first, right? Foreordination or foreknowledge, right? God knows all things because he's the one who foreordains all things, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that he is the immediate cause of all things, right? And, right, so then that's, that's what we're trying to focus on here is these second causes, right? Things, things that he's not immediately causing but are still within his purview, right? They're still not separate from his plan. So, example, so in Acts 2, the crucifixion of Jesus was the most evil act ever perpetrated, right? Yet it was decreed by God. Right? So God's decree includes evil acts. Right? The three types of second causes mentioned here represent three progressive degrees of freedom going away from God just speaking something into existence. Right? And those three, those three second causes are necessary, free, or contingent. Right? And each one of them is stepping further and further away from God's immediate act, right? So what do you think a, a necessary second cause is? Well, maybe, maybe free will be easier. What do you think a free second cause is? Well, our, yeah, so second causes that are um, related to our personal choices, right? The will of man, okay? Okay, so... Maybe that would help you then to answer what is a necessary second cause. Okay, so um, let's see. Let's look at, so contingent would be trying to communicate that it's a result of free choices, right? So we have, we have choices, and then we have things that come as a result of choices, right? And then what is this right here? And the, these are, again, further and further away from you know, God's immediate action. Which one? So, so necessary generally is, is trying to communicate um, things that are governed by just natural processes, right? What's that? What follows, what follows. right? Necessary, it was, it's necessary relative to God's, relative to creation, right? God has set certain things in motion. There's laws, right? And that, 
things that come out necessarily are not as a, re not as a result of exercise of, of will, right? Free, free second causes are the result of exercise of will, or they, they are the exercise of will, and then contingent ones are things that come as a result of somebody's exercise of will, right? So, but the thing to remember here is that, let's see. Uh, actually, let's, let's try to match these up now. So this is the topic of our lesson, really, but that was needed in order to put give us some context for understanding. So we have, we have necessary free and contingent second causes, right? And you probably have heard of these concepts here before, which are classical sources of temptation. Temptation is the topic of our study this morning. So when we try to match up, so we talked about necessary being things that are like um, natural processes, free is exercise of um, will, and then contingent is things that flow from impact the exercise of will on others or something like that, right? So see if you can, what, how can you talk about the world then as a temptation? How can, right, so these, so we have the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? How, can you describe any of these in terms of second causes, necessary, free, or contingent? Okay. Like the culture. Right. So right. So, so the world will be connected to uh, necessary second causes, right? And the flesh to free, right? And the devil to contingent, right? So the, de the devil's exercise of free will is intended to influence our free will, right? This is the exercise of our free will. And then this is um, just natural processes, the environment that we're in, right? What's that? Right, so they're limited. Not, they're not libertarianly free, but they are. Um, yeah, but that doesn't, it doesn't relieve us from the responsibility of our actions, right? Right, and we act in accordance with our desires. Okay, but again... The reminder here is that all second causes are subordinate to the decretive will of God, right? So when we look at temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're all subordinate, right? So another way of categorizing temptation is internal versus external, right? I, I heard this concept before uh, from R.C. Sproul, um, and Mark Jones is bringing up the same concept in his text as well. So according to Mark Jones, a temptation either causes or allures us to sin against God by one of two principal ways, allowing evil into or drawing evil out of our hearts. When this happens, we are drawn away from God, which is a spiritual danger. So first we'll deal with the temptation of the world, which fits into the category of allowing evil into our hearts. For a scripture text, I'll be reading from the gospel according to Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake 
and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So the question for us today is, relative to the topic of power that we discussed previously, what kind of power does the world have that could cause us to sin? Pressure? Okay. Conformity? Right. Conformity to, to what? Norms? Okay. Here's, here's some... Uh, I, I placed uh, the three, the three temp, for, forms of temptation against uh, um, the, the power uh, that they have. So which one of these do you think is the world's efficacy or the world's power? What's that? Opportunity? Right. So that's, that's the strength of the world, right? The world presents us with the opportunity to sin. Here's what Jones says about it. According to Mark Jones, the world provides opportunities for our flesh, and sometimes we even meet with some apparent success in our quest for worldly glory. We love titles like president or doctor or chairman, etc., but place li- but we place little value on the one that matters the most in Christ, which is servant. The world offers illegitimate yet tempting shortcuts to what we desire, such as sex before marriage, rather than patiently waiting for God's gift on his terms. The marketing world takes advantage of an abundant media platform to burn temptations into our eyes and hearts at an alarming rate each day. We are assaulted each day by a world that tells us that we do not have enough and we need more. We fall into these temptations because we're sometimes not even aware that we're being sucked in. We give in too quickly and feel, or quickly to feel, any real force of that temptation. But does the world have any power over God? No, right? Temptations of the world are what we called previously necessary second causes and are a part of God's foreordained plan. So let's move on to the flesh now, which, go ahead. Are you asking if God tempts? So in general, I would say that God withdraws um, provision in, in order to discipline his children, right, as a means of growth, that's, that's one category. Maybe is, you think that would fit well with what you're thinking about? Well, the, the world is, is not, um, it, it's presenting us with opportunities to sin, right? But it's, it's not actively, um, it's not an active attack, right, that what we're talking about here. Um, but it just gives us the opportunity to exercise our, our you know, to, to live out our own heart's desire, right? Um, but, yeah, I, I, and, but I, I'm, I don't know how to fit in exactly what you're getting at there, though. Um, okay, so let's, let's move on to the, the flesh, which fits into the category of drawing evil out of our hearts. 
For a scripture text for this one, I'm reading from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The question for us today is what kind of power does the flesh have that could cause us to draw closer to the temptations of the world? If you look at our three options here, which one of these do you think the power of the flesh represents the power of the flesh? Okay. It could be either one of these two. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, this one could be understood as uh, how we deceive ourselves, right? Let me focus on this one for, for this study here. Let's see. Let's see what Jones has to say. According to Mark Jones, if we become too confident in ourselves, puffed up with pride, then we have already fallen into temptation. All right, so this is asking the question, when a situation presents itself, where we could fall into sin, and we still willingly walk into that situation. You know, what is it that are about ourselves that would um, cause us to do such a thing? What, what makes us willingly walk into a situation where we are vulnerable to sin, right? Um, according to Owen, he says that, or he, says, or he that says he can do anything can do nothing as he should. Do not flatter yourselves that you shall hold out. There, is a, there are secret lusts that lie lurking in your hearts, which perhaps now stir not, which as soon as any temptation befalls you will rise. Disturb, cry, disquiet, reduce, and never give over until they are either killed or satisfied. Admitting our own weaknesses in temptation is one of the means of guarding against falling into temptation. This is why that we should pray daily and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us take a moment to think about the practical implications here. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This may be a difficult conversation, um, but this passage gives us hope in our unceasing battle against temptations. But what does it mean that all temptation is common to man? Is the temptation to lie common to man? Yes? Okay. We, we can all say that that's an easy one, right? Um, is the temptation to steal common to man? Right? Is the temptation to murder common to man? I'm going to get worse. Ready? <laughs> okay. Okay, so then the seed of that of murder is in you if you have hate in your heart, right? Is the temptation to commit adultery common to man, right? 
this does something in our apologetic, right? In, in how we engage with unbelievers. Is the temptation for same-sex attraction common to man? Okay. According to Mark Jones, we may, because of age or constitution, context, gender, etc., feel the force of certain temptations more than others, right? A poor young boy may be tempted to steal a candy bar where a wealthy elderly man would not struggle at all since he no longer enjoys sweets and, if he did, could afford to pay for them. A teenage boy will ordinarily have greater temptations toward pornographic images than a teenage girl. Because of original sin, the seed of every sin still remains in our hearts, though. So finally, we need to ask, what kind of power does the devil have that could cause us to draw closer to the temptations of the world? Go, yep, go ahead. Um, help me out. Where do you see that? I'm not going to go there. But, so uh, maybe to go? Okay. Let's see. Um, yeah, so we, we did speak previously, I think, in Chapter 9 about intentional and unintentional sin. I'm not sure exactly what I... I have to go back and listen to the recording to remember. <laughs> oh. oh, when I said what, what would... What, I was talking about what, what would make us willingly walk into a in situation... Where, Oh no! Uh, yeah. So, what? What, what would? Yeah. <laughs> <Some>. <laughs> right. So the question is: Is there a distinction between willingly and intentionally? Right. Are, are you saying that you want to draw a dist- distinction of um, how intentional it is, like uh, how much knowledge we have of that thing, or what is the distinction you think might be there? Okay. Yeah. I wasn't intending to make a distinction there. Okay. I, yeah. Okay. 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 So there's there's a difference between walking into a situation where you know that you will sin, right, versus being complacent about that temptation, right? There, there's a difference there. Yeah. Okay. So here's the question: What power does the devil have, right? Which one of these do you think matches up? more closely to what the devil does. Okay. Personalized deception. Let's... Right. Right. And and those opportunities are what? Right? Personalized. There's some, there's some strength that he has in order to present temptations that are very uniquely uh, tempting for us individually. Right? Let's see... What Mark Jones says about that one. Um, Although he is stupid, his intelligence towers above the smartest man in the world. Doesn't say much about us. Um, 
He not only deceives us, but, all, but does so craftily as he plays to our individual weaknesses and fancies, right? The devil knows our desires and he knows our weaknesses. And he can tempt us accordingly. So this is William Jenkins, another Puritan. As William Jenkins noted, he has an apple for Eve, a grape for Noah, a change of raiment for Gehazi, and a bag for Judas. Can anybody explain some of these references? Oh, yeah, yeah. Fruit. Good enough. Pomegranate. <laughs> okay, well, what is a grape for Noah? What is, what is Noah's temptation that he falls into? He gets drunk, right, from his vineyard, right? Uh, does anybody know a change of raiment for Gehazi? Right, so he, he was like using his position to ex, extort. Yeah, raiment is, you know, clothes or whatever. Um, and a bag for Judas. This is the 30 silver. So the, the idea here is that Satan knows what we desire, right? Uh, as we come under the temptations of the world, the flesh and the devil, Mark Jones leaves us with a reminder of the tools that we have at our disposal. He phrases it this way. We must lay hold of both God's promises and his ordinary means of grace, which he labels as the word, prayer, and sacraments. If we're going to arm ourselves for the battle, through these the Lord conveys to us all we need for our salvation that we may in this life grow in grace on our way to glory. Sometimes we shy away from using language like this because of concerns over like Roman Catholic style sacramentalism. But there are some things that Jones has in view here that are important to this chapter. And I would summarize them at a high level as follows. Christ's work in us doesn't end with our justification. Two, Christ's work in us doesn't mean that we're not also active in the battle against temptation and sin. Three, Christ has provided the means to wage war or to wage this war in his church, and we should not forsake them. And four, the means that Christ has provided in his church cannot, cannot fail to accomplish their ordained purpose. Let's turn now to characterizing the magnitude of the offense. When temptation matures from an inward desire to open rebellion, we'll be, spit, or, sorry, we'll be spending most of our time in questions 150 and 151 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Also, for this part of the study, in addition to Mark Jones' work, I'll be drawing heavily from an article written by Kevin DeYoung, which Ryan provided, 
um, entitled, Is Every Sin the Same in God's Eyes? So the Westminster Larger Catechism question and answer 150 reads as follows. Are all transgressions of the law of God equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God? And the answer provided is this. All transgressions of the law are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So how can we understand something like this? Many Christians hold to the mistaken notion that every sin is the same in God's eyes. So if you currently think this way, don't feel too bad uh, because you're not alone. Um, I guess this is an area where the church really does need to do a better job in catechizing the next generation. Some Christians embrace this conviction by way of misguided theological calculation, like you see in the first quote here. If every sin deserves eternal judgment, then every sin must be equally heinous. Others promote the idea for apologetic reasons. Your sins are no worse than anyone else's sins. Still, others believe in the equality of every sin out of a genuine sense of humility. Like the third quote, who am I to think that my sins are less vile than anyone else's sins? While each of these reasons is understandable and in some sense commendable, the witness of scripture and the testimony of the church's confessions tell a different story. So let's consider several examples. In the Mosaic law, or the Mosaic law prescribed different penalties for different infractions and required different sacrifices and payments to make restitution for those infractions. Next, we have the, the Mosaic law also distinguished between high hand or intentional sins and high-handed sins. Like we mentioned earlier, we studied those in chapter 9. Sins of rank idolatry and willful rebellion were more serious indictments on the kings of Israel and Judah than was the sin of failing to remove the high places in the land. And God's anger was often specifically directed against the leaders of the people. That is, the sin of the king or the priests or the elders meant greater judgment than the sins of the laity. Jesus warned that cities which he performed his miracles would be more severely judged than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus considered G Judas's betrayal in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, to be a sin worse than others. 
and God's anger is especially roused when sins are against the children or the weak or the helpless. Excommunication seems to be reserved only for the most flagrant sins. We have Cornelius. Um, He was considered a devout man who feared God, even though an unbeliever, right? So though not saved by his good works, even among non-Christians, there is a difference the way that Jones says it is between being a decent person and being a dirty, rotten scoundrel. James teaches that there is a progression of sin from tempting desires to the internal nurture of those desires to external action and finally to death. And finally, according to John, there is a sin that leads to death, but not all sins are unto death. So summing all this up, the, the larger catechism in the next question goes on to provide an extremely helpful analysis of what makes some sins more heinous than other sins. The question goes like this. What are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than other sins? That's a four-part answer. Um, Sins receive their aggravations from the person's offending. If they be of riper age, greater experience or grace, eminent for profession, gifts, place, office, guides to others, and whose example is likely to be followed by others. This means that sins are worse when they come from pastors. They're worse when they come from parents. They're worse when they come from public figures. When they come from those with a platform, to use our more contemporary language, when they come from those who teach or those who write books, and when they come from Christians who should and do know better. Sins receive their aggravations, additionally, from the parties offended. If immediately against God, his attributes and worship against Christ and his grace, the Holy Spirit, his witness and workings against superiors, men of eminency, and such as we stand especially related and engaged unto, against any of the saints, particularly weak brethren, the souls of them, or any other, and the common good of all or many. So this part of the answer means that sins are worse when they, are express, when they expressly blaspheme God or when they demean Christ and the gospel, when they reject the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting of sin and revealing of the truth, when they show disrespect to parents and persons in authority, when they ignore our weaker brothers and sisters, and when they lead many astray and have a poisonous effect in society at large. Furthermore, sins receive their aggravations from 
the nature and quality of the offense. If it be, a, a, if it be against the express letter of the law, break many commandments, contain in it many sins, if not only conceived in the heart, but breaks forth in words and actions, scandalize others, and admit no reparation. If against means, mercies, judgments, light of nature, conviction of conscience, public or private admonition, censures of the church, civil punishments, and our prayers, purposes, promises, vows, covenants, and engagements to God or men. If done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, imprudently, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight, continuance, or relapsing after repentance. It's a mouthful. This means that sins are worse when they deal with matters that are black and white instead of gray, when they break forth externally and not just internally, when they are frequent, when they are celebrated, when they cannot be undone, and when they are against nature, against conscience, and against the warnings of others. And lastly, sins receive their aggravations from the circumstances of time and place. If on the Lord's day or other times of divine worship or immediately before or after these or other helps to prevent or remedy such miscarriages, if in public or in the presence of others, who are thereby likely to be provoked or defiled. So this last part says it, it means that sins are worse when they take place in connection with the gathering of God's people for worship, when they could have been avoided, and when they are committed in public so as to be well known to others. So in light of this more broadening, more detailed, eye-opening view of what sin is and how it can be more and more offensive to the God that created us, um, Mark Jones leaves us with this final message. When tempted, let us give consideration, for example, about who we are, whom we are sinning against, and the sin we are committing. Many such reflection, or may such reflection be a deterrent to our sin. May we labor to remember that our identity is in Christ, and every sin is committed as a Christian. Many times with others' eyes upon us as such. May it matter to us that we sin more grievously against God as our Heavenly Father. Finally, remember that though our sins may be worse than others, and we are often more guilty of aggravating sin, we are all great sinners who need a Savior whose grace is greater still.
So that's really all I have for us today. I guess I'm a few minutes early. Um, I'd like to invite everyone again to join us again for next, next week where uh, Dennis will be leading us through chapter 18 on sin's omission. Are there any last minute questions or comments with regard to this lesson? Okay, well then, have a few minutes before our sermon starts. Thank you. <laughs>